We're joined now by Eric O'Keefe, the editor of The Land Report, who is out and about traveling. So we appreciate the connection. Uh, you, you track so many things with The Land Report, but I will say as an observer, I'm fascinated by the sleuthing <laughs> that it takes to compile all of this. How is that done and how has it changed over the years? Well, thank you. First of all, I appreciate uh, I appreciate the compliment. I'll accept it on behalf of our extensive team mm -hmm. that follows these landowners all year long, keeps in touch with them, earns their trust, works with them to highlight all sorts of activities that are taking place from coast to coast on their properties. Now, I'll be straightforward. A lot of them deal with NDAs and confidentiality agreements that they can't violate, and they won't share us, share with us specific facts and figures on numerous occasions. But when it's a public sale, when it's a major auction, when it's a transaction that uh, draws headlines, we get a lot of information right off the top. And, and that's exceptional, exceptionally important for us because we monitor not only the existing Land Report 100ers, but we also monitor former Land Report 100ers because just because you've sold a property doesn't mean that you won't, you don't have an eye for additional properties and are looking for an opportunity to 1031 or to get back into a great piece of property. So we do it word of mouth with the landowners, with brokers, with auctioneers, with appraisers. We obviously use a lot of technology to, uh, from a database standpoint, to be able to um, go online and look at county records and do searches that way. And um, finally, of course, there are news stories that um, some of them are current. And uh, I was just looking at one from the New York Times that ran in 1974 in their archives. Uh, so we have to really dig deep to find out some of the provenance, some of the chain of title when it comes to these large properties. And of course, keep in mind that, you know, the base, the floor for this year's Land Report 100 is its highest ever. It's 156,000 acres. And so uh, there are all sorts of different properties out there that we have not only 156,000 and above, but we monitor all sorts of properties below that as well. But when when you look at some developments, I'll, I'll use Facebook and Microsoft as examples here. As they begin the process, you know, they essentially have kind of a code name as then they work with uh, local governments and such as they put together incentive packages or whatever, or get the zoning laws change, all that kind of stuff. When you're talking about farmland and some of these developments that you've tracked, it, it's so frequently not as simple as Bill Gates farms <laughs> or what have you. How Correct. complicated is Correct. that when there are so many other ways these can be set up, especially without that well-known person's name in it. That's a that's a great question, uh, and one of the the elements that I, I think has to be recognized is that most, particularly farmland, there are usually accumulations of tranches of properties. 
there might be uh, a grouping that was owned by a pension fund uh, on the Great Plains or in the Midwest or in the Pacific Northwest. And um, I, I honestly believe that there is not a purposeful attempt to keep those transactions hidden. But the flip side is there is no incentive, and in many instances, there is no drive to trumpet or to talk up those transactions. It's a, <coughs> excuse me, it's a interesting catch-22. Um, these investors are not, um, they're not trying to stay below the radar in terms of being uh, duplicitous or secretive just doesn't add anything to their returns to trumpet the fact that they've acquired these these institutional portfolios. And so for that reason, yes, it does become difficult. And that is why, for instance, when we follow and look at uh, and work with um, different brokers nationwide, um, different reporters nationwide, um, and, and keep an eye on uh, breaking news as far as farmland, as far as ranch land, as far as timberland, as far as recreational properties. It's, it's interesting, and I'll, I'll point this out, Dave. It's, it's fascinating to me that the best reporting we typically get is from small town newspapers. Hmm. And that shows, that shows you the value of those small town presses uh, that are, you know, uh, that local 20,000 uh, acre farm uh, is a major employer, has been a, a significant portion of the commun community for decades. And to um, see a, a change in ownership, leadership status uh, is news. And it may not make it in um, the flagship state capital, largest mm -hmm. city metropolitan paper, but it, it might make it in the, uh, the small county press. And so we monitor those. And our team looks at and follows them uh, all year long. It's um, it started out as you know, like like so many other uh, research initiatives, a lot of on-the-job training in terms of how to do it better and better and better. And I still think you know we we have room to improve. As you you've been tracking this for years now, and I'm curious, just anecdotally, a lot of times when you when you have a family farm. The expansion comes from the owner next door who retires and, or maybe passes away and the heirs aren't, go, aren't going to stay into the business. As you, as you track these larger landowners, what are the themes you notice with them? Are they coming in and do they prefer these really, really large connected areas or are they getting here a location here a location here a location is there anything anecdotally or even empirically that you've noticed i would i would assume that the ones that come to mind uh and this is across almost every land use whether it be farmland timberland uh, certainly ranching um Adjacencies uh, are obviously crucial. Uh, 
Uh, they can be scaled up very easily from a management standpoint, the uh, additional properties. Um, you know, the drivers behind that, uh, when you, you point out uh, uh, someone who's retiring, uh, someone whose heirs no longer have any interest, someone who passes away and the heirs decide to liquidate, I think that you're looking at a situation where acquiring larger tracts uh, or tranches is uh, just more efficient and, um, and can be more easily um, you no, know, I think the phrase is uh, you get more juice from the squeeze there, <laughs> right? Right. You know, and and so being able to acquire, it's not to say that there aren't, you know, individual isolated parcels of any sort, uh, you know, obviously starting with the donut, you know, the in-holding, uh, obviously starting with the key adjacent property. But uh, it's not to say that uh, there, there aren't, particularly from a farmland standpoint, because I feel like farmland changes hands uh, so infrequently compared to uh, other land use types. Uh, we all know that uh, when a, uh, you know, a, a great piece of ground comes to market, it may not be 40 or it may be 40 or 50 years before it comes to market again. And uh, so um, a larger landowner will pay a premium uh, or, as we say, uh, buy early um, in terms of uh, acquiring a piece of property uh, that is that strategic fit in terms of the puzzle. You mentioned this earlier in the conversation, but you have tracked this as our, our largest landowners are, are getting larger there and it's substantially larger as you've tracked this over the years is that is that a trend now you can see continuing and yeah, what's think, what's pushing that well i think you know one of the things um and your listeners will really identify with the fact that uh, you know the the value proposition when it comes to land investing in land is uh crystal clear. I don't care if you go to uh, University of Northern Iowa data, uh, Cornell, Cal Davis, Texas A&M, Florida State, you know, the, the gradual steady increase in the value of land, all types of, whether it be irrigated, dry land, uh, timberland, ranch country, uh, that's, that data is in place and it goes back decades. And so from an investment standpoint, the basis is already in place indicating what a great value proposition investing in land is. But what's what's really become the icing on the on the cake are these new additional opportunities that have been uh, developing and we see them coming to market across all uh, land uses. Uh, we've been following carbon credits now. Uh, it's It's rather new. It uh, still hasn't uh, gained wide acceptance, but as our 2022 deal of the year with the sale of the uh, Forest Land Group's portfolio for 1.8 billion, 1.7 million acres indicates, there is uh, a lot of resources being directed towards carbon credits. Obviously renewables, 
obviously the opportunities and you see that quite often with farmland the possibilities now with transmission lines and substations um, what is going to you know i personally feel that one of the biggest opportunities is going to be around water which will tie into recreational tie into ranching and tie into timberland in terms of their water resources so you've got like i said that baseline appreciation and then you start building all these other layers and other possibilities and some of them may include you know transitional land obviously as as cities grow and uh, you know gobble up more here i am in texas and uh we lose a section of land a day to development right 640 acres gets to, on, a, on a daily basis and so um, as much as it's uh, a shame to think about, you know, pasture and uh, farmland that is being turned into uh, residential neighborhoods and uh, commercial malls and schools. On the other hand, uh, you know, one of the things that I always keep in mind is the success of those owners who are no longer selling their farmland or their pasture land for agricultural value, but are now getting transitional value in, in its place. And, and that's something that can benefit a family that's been on a property for generations. For sure. One of the, as you've tracked this, I think uh, uh, the the People Magazine side of this is that you really come across some some famous people. And I you just wrote about Drew Bledsoe, who will also be at the Land Inve Investment Expo. But can you share a little bit about, and you've known him for a while, he was a top-notch quarterback. He just had a horrific, horrific injury when he got hit on the field back when he was playing for the Patriots, and that really opened the door for Tom Brady to, to step in and, and launch his career. But, you know, now he's in the wine business. Uh, what what kind of guy is he? What what really stuck out in the profile piece that that you all had with him? I've always been, you know, Drew is such a down-home Walla Walla Washington guy. He's a hometown boy done good. And it, it, I've always been impressed by that. He, he still acts and treats people like he's a hometown boy. He's, he's not a, a pro bowler. He didn't have, you know, he, I mean, when you look at his 14-year career, uh, the teams he played for, his passing records, uh, single game, uh, single game attempts and single game completions. That record still stands to this day. And yet, when you meet him in Walla Walla and are talking with him, uh, people literally came up to us and asked about his his dad, asked about his mom. Mm. Um, he was uh, there at the Bledsoe Family Winery. Uh, with his wife, Maura, and uh, they couldn't have been nicer and more welcoming like a typical small-town business owner. The only difference is this small-town business owner is, you know, played in the, the, the greatest uh, gridiron battles, <laughs> you know, coast to coast. And, uh, and so I was, I was really, uh, he's, a, he's a really enjoyable, um, loves his wine very passionate about i love that line that he told me uh he's he's very selfish when it comes to wine he makes the ones he wants to drink himself i thought that was a wonderful take on 
what his passion is. And he's putting that into building the team that he's created at uh, Bledsoe Wine Estates. Uh, he, he mentioned that Robert Kraft, the owner of the Patriots, had been a key mentor for him in what he's done building the Patriots and winning all of those Super Bowls. Mr. Kraft journeyed to Walla Walla and uh, met with Drew's team. And uh, when he did so, Drew just pointed out the fact that he asked, he asked Mr. Kraft, what do you try to be the best at? Hmm. In front of all of, all of Drew's teams, what do you try to, is it, is it the draft? Is it, is it the coaching? Is it, and his response was, was telling. He said, we try to be the best at everything. Hmm. We want to be the best at concessions. We want to be the best at parking. We want to be the best at guest experience. We want to, and he just went down the list and then got to the, the status of the operation, the team management, the, the draft. You know, so I thought that was interesting that he approached that because as I uh, explored and got to see a bit more of the Bledsoe Wine Estates operation, they run it like a tip-top ship. And uh, I say that because I've uh, been to uh, wineries in Napa and Sonoma. Uh, I was just on some great wine ground on the North Fork of Long Island, believe it or not, where uh, they've converted some some old sod farms and uh, cabbage ground into grape ground there. And uh, you would be hard pressed to find a more professional, welcoming group of people than the ones at Doubleback Winery and at uh, Bledsoe Family Winery. Just a really, and, and that starts from the top down and it includes not only Drew and Maura, he pointed out that uh, his director of winemaking, Josh McDaniels, is an integral element of, of that organization in terms of setting the corporate culture. It's like crediting, crediting his offensive line, right? Yeah, it, it is, exactly. Giving credit where credit's due. And, um, you know, uh, we toured... Uh, we had a great meeting uh, in, uh, he sat me down. It was uh, 1030 in the morning, pours me a big glass of this 2021 Pinot Noir <laughs> from the Willamette Valley. And uh, I'm glad I had a good breakfast uh, because uh, it was a fan. I mean, it was a fantastic wine and we had a great, uh, oh, fantastic chat. Uh, he's a really uh, vocal when it comes to his his passion for wine, but as we walked out and walked up to the uh, second floor deck of uh, Doubleback, um, there were some uh, some of his employees who he just immediately just walked right over to. They greeted him uh, casually, friendly, respectfully, vice versa. He introduced me. I mean, just like you said, it's it's building a team from the top down, and you could see that uh, he walks the walk. That is a, an experience you will not forget. Hey, Eric, we really appreciate the time and look forward to, to catching up and hearing more of these when you come in town for the Land Expo in January. Thanks so much. Well, thank, you're welcome. Thanks for having me on board. And I, wanna, uh, I really want to follow that up and just say uh, getting Drew Bledsoe on stage at the uh, Expo is going to be a real treat for everybody. If you can't attend in person, 
sign in, get online and watch and listen because it, he, he's, he's, he's a closer. He's guaranteed to deliver.